The passage on which our teaching is based comes from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in his age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christine. You didn't have to make such a dramatic exit, but that's what I get to follow. Well, you've probably received a message like this. Hello, congratulations. There is an account that has funds in it that you get to withdraw. This account has been unknown to you previously, but we have discovered this in the government's records and you can withdraw on these funds. It's in the amount of secret number, right? That's blocked out. Please reply or go to this website to give us your information to access these funds. Now, in that message, there's probably some weird misspelling that you're like, hold on a second. Funds isn't spelled with an I, right? But uh, there's this one time that I received a message like that And I didn't think it was a scam initially because it was from my sister letting me know that there was a secret government fund that I did not know about held by the state where they keep unclaimed checks. And these unclaimed checks, they just hold on to them. And if your name's on that list, you can fill out the form, the information, and they send you this unclaimed check. And so my sister, who probably dropped this in our family's group chat, of course got roasted, all right? We're like, what are you, some princess from a foreign country who needs to move her money here? Like, what's going on? You know, but then she's like, no, guys, I'm serious, right? Because she's the youngest of us, and so she got roasted pretty hard, probably. And uh, so after a while, she, she messages me on the side. She's like, hey, like, when I was checking, your name was on the list. I'm like, Fantastic. I don't know what money I've been missing, but I'm excited to find out. So I go to a thankfully state-sponsored run website and on there, sure enough, my name's on the list. And sure enough, it's an old check from a summer college job that I had worked that I guess I just neglected to receive the funds for. How that happened, I do not know, but it, it jives with how I was in college. So. I get the funds. Now, it wasn't a crazy amount of money because it was a college summer job. I didn't exactly make a ton. But there were these unaccessed funds that I was able to take advantage of. 
Now, if this sounds familiar to last Sunday's sermon, that's because it's in keeping with this theme that Paul has laid out for us in this book of Ephesians that we've been going through, and that we're here in this finishing up this first chapter of this letter, where Paul goes into talking about all of these amazing riches that we have in Christ, and that God has lavishly blessed us with, like the lights coming back on, right? And so as God has lavishly blessed us, I'm waiting for someone to run to the control panel, but no one's running yet. It's uh, over here by these doors in the back. Just smash the buttons, the lights will come back on, right? And so God's given us these glorious blessings, right? That as we'll talk about, we can be illuminated by. That is a, a pun that will come back around, I promise. All right, so we've been given these glorious blessings in Christ. And then as Paul unpacks all these glorious blessings, he turns now to praying for this, these people that he's writing this letter to. As he, he says in the here, he says, since I've heard of your faith, I have not ceased to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers and I pray, and then he's gonna list out what he prays for these people of whom his faith he has heard. Now, in there, we get to understand what is it Paul is praying for, and we see that it's much like what I just described with my sister texting me about. Basically, Paul is saying, look, it is possible for you to have all these riches and yet to not access them. It is possible for you to have all of these funds that you just are unclaimed checks for you spiritually, and you are not tapping into them. You are leaving resources on the table. And so as Paul details these amazing riches, he then turns to praying that we would be able to access them. And so we're going to look at what is it that Paul prays for then that helps us access these things that we could just be leaving on the table. Because it's, it's a great feeling when you realize you have some unclaimed checks, right? And even though it wasn't a lot of money, it then probably allowed me to justify some lavish purchase I had already made and say, see, Jamie, the Lord provides, right? <laughs> It's also great, you know, we, this doesn't happen in Southern California, right? When you pull out the winter coats, for those of you who grew up with real winter, and then you reach in and there's that, that money that's still left in there, you're like, oh, yeah, you know? So we have that available to us spiritually. And yet, Paul is saying, even though it's there, we're not always accessing it. And one of the ways to access it is by prayer. And so we're going to look at what does Paul pray for, and then how do we get access to it? Those will be our two headings as we walk through Paul's prayer. So let's look at this first point. What does Paul pray for these people? These people whose faith he's heard of. These people who have these amazing riches that he wants to access. What does he pray for them? And I'll sum it up for you like this. In verse 17, he basically is saying, I'm praying that you would know God better. Paul is praying for these people that he's heard of their faith in him, he's praying that they would know God better. Look with me at verse 17, if you would. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, let's be honest. If you're anything like me, I read something like this, and even I look at it and 
with all the classes I've had to sit through on Pauline theology and epistles and whatnot, I look at this and I'm just like, oh, flowery prayer language that just kind of my eyes glaze over. But what is actually Paul saying here then? What is he saying? I would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And maybe if you have a different translation, if you looked in, it would actually say something to the effect of, I'm praying that you would have the wisdom and revelation to know him better. Because in many ways, Paul is praying for them to have something that in one sense they already have, which is weird. Why would he do that? Why would he pray for them to have something that they already have? Well, think about it like this. We kind of have a knowledge crisis like in our midst right now because you've probably heard all the stories about artificial intelligence, right? Artificial intelligence and what does it know? What does it not know? Does it actually know anything? Or is it just this big learning, this, you know, this big language model that just kind of predicts the next thing and gives you the best prediction? And so there's all this surrounding that. But further, you know, we've all already been living in a sense of, of these big tech companies knowing us, right? Amazon and Google, in some ways, might know me better than the people closest to me. They might know more about me than my own wife. They might know all these data points that can predict even down to when they think I'm going to get sick because of how the patterns and just the trajectory of my phone and the usage of it have changed. We know that these big tech companies know all this information about us. And yet, would any of us say, Google knows me? And yeah, like they know me. Like they know when it's late at night and I want a late night snack. Sometimes they know to sell me things before I even knew that I wanted that thing. And then I want that thing. All right? So... They know me, but I would never say they know me, even if they have my height, my weight, all my demographics. They know stuff about me I wouldn't even know. I would never say they know me. Because even though they can predict, yeah, let's put those outshine bars on the homepage. He's going to be wanting those tonight. Even though they could predict that, they're not going to know that, yeah, maybe I... I, I just have a habit that's kind of built in and I like to snack late at night. Or, you know, that one of my heroes recently passed away and, and it's really sad. And I want an outshine bar, if I'm being honest. Or that, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would read this story called The Midnight Eaters. And it was about this grandmother and this young daughter who end up living in the same house together. And they realized that actually Really old people and really young people have a lot in common and how they both like kind of rebel against the mom of the house. And what they do is they sneak out in the middle of the night and they eat all the snacks. And so on occasion, my mom would let us wake up in the middle of the night, go downstairs and eat some ice cream. Right? That got sentimental real quick. Very emotional. And Paul has a word for that kind of knowing. Not just predictive behavior because it's a large learning language model. No, it's the knowing that comes from, as Paul would say, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, where you actually have someone disclose to them who you are. 
And Paul's saying, that's what I want for you. I want you to know God, not as a set of data points. I don't want you to relate to God as a transactional, predictive data set. I don't want you to relate to God because you have a cherished set of beliefs that you hold dear. Though all those things may be good, Paul's saying, I want you to relate to God because you have had a personal experience of him revealing himself to you, that you can know him in this way. Now, this may at first sound a little woo-woo, like, hold on, this is some kind of like extra secret knowledge? No, not, not at all. Paul is just praying that you would access the riches that are already available to you. There are unclaimed checks that are on hold for you that God wants to pour out. And one of the ways that he's going to, you cash those checks is through prayer, is by coming to him, asking for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. All of our problems in one sense are kind of boiled down to the fact that we don't really believe the things that we say that we believe. We're leaving resources on the table and they're unclaimed. And so is this how knowing God is for you? Now, to make this point a little bit more clear, so why would God pray for them to have something they already have, right? This kind of fits in line with this general principle that's true of all of us at any sense of level of maturing into something. So the hero that I mentioned earlier who passed away is Tim Keller. And in a sermon from the 90s, looking at this text, he gives this general principle as to why we would un- or how we can understand why we would pray for something that we already have to be made real to us. And so he lays out this story. Think of this little girl who lives in the orphanage, and she's waiting to be adopted. And as she's there, everything in her heart screams that she wants a mommy, right? And then one day a woman comes by, and sits down and talks with her and they play toys and dolls and they're talking and as they get to know each other, eventually the woman says, you know, I would like to take you home and be your mommy. Would that be okay with you? And then Tim lays out, what's the little girl's response gonna be? Well, of course, she just interacted with this woman and this woman could fulfill her deepest needs and desires right here, right now. She's not gonna say, well, I mean, what do you bring to the table in this relationship, right? Like, could uh, you come back maybe next sometime next week, I'll pencil you in, bring your records, a credit statement, you know, do you have any pets? Like, no, of course, the little girl's going to jump at the opportunity. But then play this out a bit further, he says. Imagine this woman is this powerful, wealthy woman with all of these resources That, of course, initially, the girl jumps at the chance to be loved and to have a mommy. But she's going to have to grow in a knowledge of the understanding of the resources and the position of power and privilege that she's going to be adopted into and how she can then use that and what that's going to mean for her life as she moves through this world. She's going to have to mature into it. And you see, That example is exactly what it's like for all of us when we come to Jesus, is it not? At first, you're like, forgiveness of my sins, some power to overcome patterns in my life, you know, uh, a certainty and a meaning in life. Yes, please sign me up, right? 
But even though we initially jump at those things, which is right, it's incumbent upon all of us to grow in that maturity. Which then brings us to the next point, which is, okay, so how do we do it? How do we actually grow in that maturity? Paul is praying that we would know God better. So how do I know God better? Thankfully, that's the next part of Paul's prayer. And okay, I tricked you. I said two points, but this next one is like three points of the second point. So it's like four points really. But um, here's how we know this. He's gonna lay this out in these next three principles. Because he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So that's directly related to that first clause. I want you to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And then right there in verse 18, there's that phrase, so that. He says, I want you to know God better, so that. And that so that is kind of the both how we know God better and the proof that we're knowing him better. So he lays out three things that he says. He says, I want you to know what is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? Those are the three headings that he gives. He says, I want you to know God better so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Hope, inheritance, and power. Hope, wealth, and the measurable greatness of his power. What does Paul mean by those three things? Well, first off, let's not glaze right past this verse 18 too fast, where he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Because the idea here is that much unlike this room, when the lights get thrown on, it gets illuminated. I told you it was coming back. All right. So it gets illuminated. Now, if the lights were to blast on right now, it would be a little painful for me. For you, on the other hand, it may be nice. You'd be like, ah, finally, some energy, some life. It's cloudy, it's dark, and then the lights in here are mimicking what's happening outside because of the solar panels. What are we going to do, right? It would wake us up. It would give us some energy. For me, it would be blinding and it would hurt, all right? But that's kind of actually how this power and this enlightening comes into our lives, that in one sense, it might be painful, light flooding into the darkness, but on the other hand, it kind of ta- it, it alludes to this idea of a, of a blind person receiving their sight for the first time. So it could be painful, but it also could be glorious. And the things that would be brought into the light are our hope, our inheritance, the wealth of his hope, his inheritance, and his immeasurable greatness. It's important to get those pronouns right, that it's his hope, his wealth, his immeasurable greatness. So what is it about this hope? All right, well, whenever we talk about hope, we always have to give the caveat that the biblical concept of hope is very different from the English language's concept of hope, right? I hope that the sun finally comes back out one day here in Southern California, okay? That is my hope. Am I guaranteed it? I mean, kind of, sorta. It's just a matter of like maybe when it's gonna happen, but there's no certainty that it's happening today. But I really hope it would happen today. You see, That's the English language concept of hope. Many of you have hope for your sports teams. You have hope for what may or may not happen at work. You have hope, things that you aren't certain are gonna happen, but you'd like them to happen. Whereas the biblical concept of hope is that there is a certainty 
of what will happen. And that certainty invades your present reality. You see, the biblical concept of hope is not an escape hatch where I hope in heaven. That is, I just can't wait to get out of here and get into heaven. No, that's not it at all. Actually, the certainty of heaven breaks into our reality and changes us here and now. And Paul wants his readers then and the readers here this morning, us, to know the certainty, this hope of his calling. You see, the biblical concept of hope is that there is some future reality that says the present circumstances of your life right now do not define the meaning of your life. The meaning of your life is not found in your present circumstances. It's found in your future hope. Now, that's true whether you're a Christian or not. Whatever faith you may hold to or whatever non-faith you may say, we are hope creatures. Our view of the future infects and invades our reality now. It's just a matter of what do you have a vision of the future being. Let me give you an illustration. I'm really bad. Excuse me. Let me rephrase. Growth mindset. I am not good yet at planning vacations. All right? I'm not good yet at making these things happen. Some of this might be because, you know, when you grow up at the beach, you don't really need to go on vacation. Or when your mom lives there, you can just be like, oh, yeah, vacation. Sure, let's go for the weekend. Right? So what has happened in our household is vacation kind of sneaks up on us out of nowhere, you know? I don't know where it comes from. And usually it comes from my wife going, we haven't had vacation in a while. And I'm like, okay, great, what are we gonna do? And my default is, what did we do last time that we liked? Let's just do that again, right? And as my wife has patiently borne with me through these trials and sufferings, um, she has made it clear that, you know, it would be nice if we planned them in advance. I'm like, okay, why? And she says, well, because the anticipation of the vacation, of the trip, the joy that would be in the future actually would really be nice to look forward to rather than it's the week before and now it's just the stress of we haven't planned anything for vacation and my husband's gonna say, staycation? (laughs) And she's not wrong, right? She knows the certainty of her future and she's trying to change it. So, so I've tried to get better at planning these vacations so that the hope of the future could break into, the joy of the future could break into today. Now, if that's true of vacations, how much more true is that, right, of the Christian certainty of the hope of our calling that we've been called by God? There's so much more to unpack there in calling, but that gives you an idea that it's not just the joy that can break into our our hard suffering moments of like the way a vacation does. But a friend of mine, as we were conversing in a group message about the passing of Tim Keller, said this, my heart breaks for his beloved wife. The older I get, the more attractive the concept of eternity becomes to me. There are just people you never get enough of in this life. The conversations are never long enough. You always wish you could linger a little longer with your time. 
It's amazing to think that because of Jesus, that desire can be and is fulfilled. See, that hope can break in in our suffering, letting us know that the things that we're most disappointed in are actually going to find their fulfillment and their longing in Christ. You see, we all have hope strategies. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has an entire chapter on hope. And he kind of talks about these different strategies that we have, that on the one hand, there's the foolish man's strategy. And that is this idea of that future that won't disappoint, breaking in now, is never realized, and they never realize that there's a reason it's never realized. And so it's, well, let me just try a different sports car, or let me try a different wife, or let me try a different place to party, or let me try a different, and it's always let me try, let me try, let me try, coming up empty, and never realizing, what's going on here? Why am I keep coming up empty? And yet they're foolish to continue to think, well, I guess I just haven't found the right it yet. Where on the other hand, C.S. Lewis describes, there's the disillusioned sensible man. This is the man who goes, yeah, it ain't out there. So chill out. Don't get your hopes up too high. Just like relax, try and enjoy what you can. But that deepest longing of your heart, like you just need to learn to like numb that. Chill that. Enjoy the vibes. Like this, this is not there. To which C.S. Lewis says, but suppose infinite happiness really is there waiting for us. Suppose one really can reach the rainbow's end. In that case, it would be a pity to find out too late, a moment after death, that by our supposed common sense, we had stifled in ourselves the faculty of actually enjoying it. And that's what brings him to then to the Christian's strategy for hope. Is again, it's not an escape hatch, but it's a hope that breaks into the present reality here and now. And so you've probably heard this famous quote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe that it is a fraud. Probably, Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. That that true happiness, that joy, that certainty that can break in here and now is there, but it can't be found in this world. But that doesn't mean the universe is a fraud, that the universe has all been a lie. It's just that these things that we have are to point us to the thing that can actually satisfy it. Jesus, the one who gives us our hope. So if that's hope, what is the wealth of the glorious inheritance in the saints? And again, here the pronouns are important because it says, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I won't spend too much on this time because, well, Pastor Jeff gave a master class on inheritance as a theme throughout the entirety of the Bible last Sunday. And so I would definitely point you to that as a great resource But this idea of inheritance is that it's not what we inherit from God, but it's how God inherits us. Now, don't get me wrong. Both of those concepts are in the New Testament. It's in the entirety of the Bible. 
This idea that Israel in the Old Testament was God's inheritance, that the church is God's inheritance, and that Israel inherits God, and that we, the church, as God's people, now in this New Testament, right, we will have an inheritance of all these great riches being realized and in their full. But in this case, Paul is specifically talking about how we are God's inheritance. And that's why the pronouns are important. The wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Again, this kind of goes with this concept of hope. And C.S. Lewis, in another one of his works called The World's Last Night, he kind of posits this, this, this thought experiment. Suppose this was the world's last night is a theme that rings through the entirety of the letter, of the lecture. And at the end, he goes, you know, imagine, I imagine what that last night will be is that it will be a verdict, a judgment being rendered that is true and fits and makes perfect sense to us. And he says it like this. He says, it's powerful to know when someone says something to you, whether good or bad, if they say it to you, and if they're complimenting you in particular, that's nice. It's nice if someone compliments you. But you got to take it at a discount. Because what could be their motives? Or is that really what they think? They're just being nice, right? Are they just Christians? They have to be. Right? He says, but suppose you overhear someone talking about you. And if you overhear someone talking about you in a way that is destructive because they don't have a very high opinion of you, it cuts deep. But the same is true on the other side. Suppose you overhear people talking about you and they're saying nice, glorious, wonderful things. They're giving you all sorts of compliments and they don't know that you can hear, which means you don't have to take this one at a discount. You can know that what they're actually saying, that must be what they really believe. He goes on, he says, you know, it's like when a kid comes up and they say something out loud and that, you know, the parents, you've probably had this experience. Your kid goes somewhere and says, my mommy thinks, and you're like, oh no, what is about to come out of their mouth? <laughs> because on one hand, you know, it's going to be true and it'll be embarrassing. And that's what C.S. Lewis is getting at. He's just saying the world's last night is going to be God's verdict coming out, and you're going to know it's true. The way that you know it when you overhear someone saying it, or the way when a child blurts it out, blurts it out inappropriately, you're going to know it's true. And if you know that it's God seeing you as his glorious inheritance, that would change everything about you in an instant. Think back to how we started, right? There's unclaimed checks, and it's not some you know, foreign prince that's not real in a fake country. But it's my sister telling me about real money, that, that anticipation, that feeling, that excitement. That's the kind of excitement God has about you. And it's why he's called you. You are his glorious inheritance. It's why Jesus could endure the cross because he had a hope of his inheritance and what would come to him. We'll get more to that in a bit later. But the way God's excited, the way you could get excited about money that's yours, you could just get to claim and inherit, is just a small fraction of how God really feels about you. 
And that's why Paul prays, what would your life be like if you really believed that? If you really understood that you were his glorious inheritance? Which takes us to the last thing that he prays for. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? So Paul's like, I want you to know God better. And if you really knew God better, you would know the hope that you have and how that would change you today. And you would know that you're God's inheritance and how that would change you today. And then the third thing he says, if you know God better, you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. Now you look at that and again, Maybe it's flowery spiritual language because it goes on to say he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at the right hand of the heavens, and maybe you've lost the thread already. Like, wait, what's Paul saying here? Well, he exercised, again, the idea here is to get the pronouns correct, that it's his immeasurable power. Now, right away, you might want to ask, how do we measure something that's immeasurable? How do we know it? Well, much in the same way that we know infinity is infinity. We can't measure it, but we know it's immeasurable. And if God has that kind of power in his life, John Stott, in his little commentary on this letter in the book of Ephesians, points out that here, Paul is going to break into how God's power is real in our life. And the way he's going to put that on display to show us that there is an infinite power here and a measurable power here at work in your own life, is he's gonna say, there's two enemies that God took down. And if you understood how he took down these two enemies, you would understand there's an infinite power here available to you. An infinite power at work in this world for you. And he says, the first enemy is the enemy of death. Because no matter how powerful you are, how rich you are, death comes for us all. We can stave it off, we can extend the life expectancy, but in the end, it's just expectancy. It's not, we know what the real certainty is, and the certainty is death. But he says that God's great power was exercised, this is verse 20, by raising Jesus from the dead. That Jesus was able to defeat death. Now, first, you need to understand that that means Jesus died for you. That his immeasurable power was bent towards him coming and dying for you. That he overcame death because he first submitted to death. That Jesus, in many ways, like Paul here, prays all of these things for you. If you just later today go and looked at John 17, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, he, he explicitly says, I pray for them, talking about disciples, and for those who will believe through them, referring to you, if you believe. Because we all believe in Jesus because the apostles took the message out, right? So Jesus is praying for us at his present moment in the future, future us. And he's praying that we would know this hope this joy, and that we are God's inheritance, that the reason he's in that garden, sweating blood, going to die on a cross, is because he expects to have you. And he would call you and he would redeem you. But to do that, he would give up all hope. He would give up all the riches and wealth of heaven so that he could trade them for the riches and wealth in you. 
and then God raised him from the dead. He overcame death itself. And so, to go back to Tim Keller, on one of his ministry's websites, they posted some of his quotes from his book on death. And he says this, that George Herbert says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Death used to be able to crush us, but now all death can do is plant us in God's soil so that we become something extraordinary. He overcame death for you so that you could overcome death. And now death is just a gardener. It's going to make you into something more extraordinary, which takes us right into this next one in verse 20, where she says, he expressed his power in Christ by raising him from the dead, but also by seating him at his right hand in the heavens. And this is where John Stott points out that Jesus overcomes two enemies, right? The first enemy, death, this other enemy that Jesus was able to absolutely overcome is evil. That all the evil in the world that conspired against Jesus in that moment on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus is able not just to overcome death, but to use all the forces of evil to ultimately accomplish his own ends, to get his own inheritance, to ensure our own calling, that there was no evil that could stand against him that would ever disrupt his plan. And that if that was true then, how much more true is it now that he is seated, ruling, and reigning in heaven? In this age and in the age to come. So in many ways, as Jesus prays all these themes for us, we know it was because all these themes were denied to Jesus. But then how much more then is if Jesus was able to overcome all of that is he going to make sure that his prayers are answered? Because Jesus' prayer is that you would receive your inheritance because you're his inheritance. Jesus' prayer is that you would know the hope of your calling because you were the hope of his calling. And he is ruling and reigning and moving everything now. And that's why this little phrase in verse 23, excuse me, verse 22, where it says, he has all authority, power, dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him his head over everything. And then there's proposition for the church. All this power, all this might, this sovereignty, the rule and reign is directed for the church. Which then brings us to another quote that they had posted about Tim Keller that he had said in his work on death where he says, remember that when you walk into the valley of the shadow of death, it is Jesus, the shepherd, who has led you there. He has comfort to give you way and ways to strengthen, deepen, and grow you that would be otherwise impossible. So give thanks for his presence, refuse self-pity, and seek him in prayer even when you don't feel him present, because he is. Jesus himself walked into death, solitary, and rejected by everyone. So when we face the death of a loved ones, or even our own, we will never be alone. And we'll know that we'll never be alone because Paul ends in verse 23 with this word. Which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. I'll be totally honest with you, I read that and I had no idea what it meant. 
and I tried to spend all week untangling. Wait, so like, where's the, in the Greek, what does the, and how, is it relating to, and there's, there's some debate, I won't even lie to you, but I, I think it's pretty clear that many, many great scholars have said that the idea here is, is this, that if Jesus is the head and the church is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. That is saying, well, Jesus is the one who fills all things in every way. But what fills Jesus? And it says, well, if he's the head and we're the body, it's the church that fills the body. And so Jesus' disposition towards you is, as John Calvin would say, as William Hodge would say, as many theologians went on to say, is that He's like the husband whose wife isn't at home and he misses her and it doesn't feel right. Or he's like the father who's at home but the kids aren't there and it just is too quiet and it's not right. That there is something missing. And in many ways, Jesus has this feeling that there is something still missing that he is going to make sure he gets. That the thing that fills Jesus, the one who fills everything, is his church, which is you, which is why you can have the certainty of hope, which is why you can know that you really are his inheritance, and is why you can see that all his immeasurable greatness of his power is directed towards your good for the church. Now imagine if we really knew that. Imagine if that filled our minds with the light what kind of hopes we would no longer be tempted by, what kind of riches we would see pale in comparison to the riches that are in Jesus, which is why ultimately the end here is that we would all pray, like Paul, to know God better. Let's do that now. Our Lord and Savior, we come to you asking that you would fill our minds with the light so that we would know what is the hope of our calling? What is the wealth of your glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe? So Father, please, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Amen. Amen.